0: Just a quick review here where we uh, left off a couple of weeks ago. <clears throat> First Kings 3, we talked about God appears to Solomon, gave him wisdom, riches, and honor. It also gave him long life, and he said, if you obey and walk in my commandments. This week we're at 1 Kings chapter 4. This is what I call a snapshot of Solomon's glory. We're looking at the kingdom, a lot of the things, the details that that make it such a great kingdom, and this kind of parallels chapter 10 a little bit that we'll look at in a few weeks as far as detailing the, the glory, the actual glory, the details of that that we see in the kingdom. Who said these words? Know you not that you are a temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, and such are you. Paul said that. Where did he say it? 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Six is one. We'll look at that next week, perhaps. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And when he says, you are a temple of God, 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16 and 17, he wants to paint the picture that you being the church, he's talking specifically to the Corinthians, but in larger uh, degree too, the church is the temple of God. Now going from that, what... What does that tell us? Why why should we look at the temple of God and think about the church as the temple of God and what do we learn from that? How do we com- compare the two? How are we the temple of God? What attributes does it have? Holy. It's holy. What else? It should be a place where God dwells place where God dwells. That's one of the key components of the temple, isn't it? It's, it? We go back to the tabernacle. God said he wanted to dwell among his people. And by extension, we apply that to the temple, not only the tabernacle, but to the temple as well. So it's a place where God dwells. God wants to be among his people. And the fact that it's holy the, the purity of it, it's sanctified for worship to God, and it's where we come to know God, be with Him, dwell with Him. So we see that picture. And again, we look at, we have to go back to the Old Testament to fully understand and appreciate what all that means and what all is entailed there. All right, chapter 4. We're going to look at Solomon's administration Here. <clears throat> And uh, we'll begin first, first Kings chapter 4, verse 1. King Solomon was king over all Israel, and these were the princes whom he had Azariah, the son of Zadok, the priest, Elihareph, and these are scribes. Verse 4: Mineah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the host. We've talked about him in previous weeks, he was the military leader. Zadok and Abiathar were priests. Here we have included Abiathar, even though you might recall he was excommunicated. <clears throat> and uh, here's perhaps just a review of who were the priests at, at one given time. Verse 5, Azariah, the son of Nathan, over the officers, Zabud, uh, was chief minister or priest. And uh, we might think of him more as a uh, minister than a priest type function. Ahishar was over the household. Adoniram, the son of Abda, was over the men subject to task work. So, if we were to compare this to the President of the United States, we would call this Solomon's what? This is his cabinet. These are the, the higher officials in his administration, the highest officials, those that are closest to him. And we have the the all the different divisions divided up of the, uh, the priestly functions, those that are over the, the military, those that are perhaps maybe a cabinet member like chief of staff and those type people, those functions that are close to uh, Solomon. <clears throat> now in the following verses we have those that are on the lower tier of governing officials and these might be called in your version officers or they may be called governors and these are over regions so when you break the kingdom down into certain regions territories verse 7 through 19 is going to cover those territories and all of these men uh, pretty much we don't see those names mentioned anywhere we can't go to another scripture reference but I wonder sometimes if we're going to With our technology, as advanced as it is, someday we'll dig up perhaps the leaders and the governors in Solomon's kingdom. We'll probably find a tablet with all these names listed on them. But nevertheless, we have them mentioned here for us by the inspired word of God. And I'm just going to run through these briefly here. Solomon's regional officials of verse 7. He had 12 officers over all Israel who provided food for the king, verse 7. At his household, each man had to make provision for a month in the year. Now keep that idea in mind because we're going to bring that up in a little bit later in the study. That each of these has a responsibility to provide for Solomon and his household. And his household is not just 5 or 10 people. It's much larger than that. The demands are much, much greater than that. Verse eight: These are their names: Ben Hur in the hill country of Ephraim. Ephraim. Ben Deker. Uh, verse ten: Ben Hesed. Uh, ben. Verse eleven: Ben abinadab and all the height of Dor. And parenthetically, he says he had Taphath, a daughter of Solomon, to wife. Baana, In verse twelve: Ben geber Verse thirteen verse 14, Ahinadab, Ahimeaz, verse 15, verse 16, Baana, Jehoshaphat, verse 17, Shimei, verse 18, and Geber, the son of Uri, in the land of Gilead, the country of Sihon, king of the Amorites. Now, at this time, that's referring to a territory that Previously, before the Israelites had come through there, they conquered Sihon and Og. But uh, this is just referring to that area east of the Jordan River. Verse 18, so we have Shimei and then Geber, the son of Uri. And uh, he was the only officer. Last part of verse 19, he was the only officer that was uh, in the land, governor of the land. All right, so we've got 12 uh, governors or officers over Israel, and these are broken down in the geographic territories. And each of these has a duty, not their only duty. And I think perhaps one of their duties they have in the year is to take care of the household of Solomon and provide for them their needs that they have, their food, all the provisions. We're going to look at the those provisions here and the great extent to which uh, they are fed and taken care of in just a few moments. In verse 20, we're now in a section here where we're seeing the magnitude of the kingdom. Verse 20, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand which is by the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and making merry. This is a time of peace Time of prosperity, and the people are benefiting from that as well. They're able to eat and enjoy the peace and the prosperity that being in a kingdom like this uh, entails. Verse 20 Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river unto the land of the Philistines, unto the border of Egypt, and they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Now, Solomon's provision for one day was 30. 30 cores, yours might say, 30 measures, there's 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 oxen out of the pastures, and 100 sheep, besides hearts, gazelles, roebucks, and fatted fowl. So these people eat quite well, don't they? You don't get the picture that these people are barely scraping by or every day eating rice and beans, do you? They eat the best and only the best is provided for the king, which again shows you the prosperity of the kingdom, how great it is that they have these provisions and have them in great number. Verse 25, well actually back up to verse 24, he had demanded over all the region on this side of the river from Tifsa even to Gaza. When he says, verse 24, this side of the river, I normally refer to the Euphrates River up to the northeast. We'll look at the map here in just a moment. And he had peace on all sides round about. Judah and Israel dwelt safely, every man under his vine and under his fig tree. Again, a phrase that's applied to prosperity and peace. The prophets use that phrase many times to refer to their peace and prosperity, every man under his vine or under his fig tree or enjoying the fruits of that. As well, we see the last part of verse 25, the region that they had was from Dan to Beersheba. That again is a phrase that's sort of coined to refer to the uppermost, the northernmost to the southernmost parts of the kingdom, all the way up to Dan, all the way down to Beersheba. Many times again, the the prophets would repeat this as well. They had this all the days of Solomon, verse twenty-five. The Solomon stalls of horses for his chariots. Some of your versions might reword this to say four thousand stalls of horses. Second Chronicles nine verse twenty five will refer to this same idea that there were four thousand stalls of horses, and there's some discrepancy in the what is thought to be the scribal uh, interpretation here that the difference applies to to the scribal interpretation, uh, and also uh, you so you might look at this verse twenty six as being forty or 4,000 stalls of horses. Second Chronicles uh, re- refers to this as 4,000. Uh, and in some ways, I really don't have a problem with it being 40,000 stalls of horses because if you've got 12,000 horsemen in verse 26, and then you have chariots on top of that, and you want at least perhaps two or three horses, per horseman or per chariot or whatever, you you would easily come up with 40,000 horses. And by the way, in 1 Samuel 13, verse 5, when Saul and Jonathan were fighting, the Philistines were said to have had 30,000 chariots. Again, that could be a scribal error in 1 Samuel 13, verse 5, but it's not really... Firmly known what those numbers were. Really, to what we're to get out of this, I think, verse 26, is that there were a lot. Solomon had a lot of horses. And I have no problem thinking that he had many, many thousands of horses. Because he, we know, and we'll, we'll see this later, that he multiplied many, many horses to himself. Verse 27, those officers, uh, these in verse 27, those officers will refer back to verse 7. So tie verse 27 back into verse 7 where we have these regional governors that are taking their turn providing for the household of Solomon. Verse 27, those officers or governors provided food for King Solomon and for all that came unto him. All that came to his table, every man in his month, they let nothing be lacking. There was no scrounging around for more. There was plenty, and Solomon's household demanded it, and there was nothing lacking. Verse 28 barley also, even on top of what we've already seen, verse 28, they also had to provide for all of these horses all of these swift steeds that they have. Verse 28, barley also and straw for the horses and swift steeds brought they unto the place where the officers were, every man according to his charge. And we might say every man according to his monthly duty, to his charge that's allotted to him. All right, just to review. So we look at the magnitude of the kingdom in verse twenty through 28. A few things I'll highlight here. We saw in verse 20 the population of the people is as the sand of the sea. The provisions we see, the magnitude of that in one day that's provided for him. And lest you forget as we kind of glossed over that, verse 22, Solomon's provisions for one day. One day. The dominion Peace on all sides and horses without number. I'm not going to put a number on it. Uh, anyway, let's let's look at three of these. Let's look at the dominion, the provisions for one day, and let's look at the population. This is the kingdom of Solomon. Looking at it from a geographical standpoint. When they when this chapter says they had peace on all sides, we the the green part or the yellowish part there is the the kingdom per se, the kingdom proper, the kingdom of Israel. All of these other areas here in the purplish are vassal areas. And the part in the orange there would be Phoenicia. But if you will look mainly for for our purposes tonight, let's look all the way up to the northeast, upper right-hand corner, and you'll see the Euphrates River. I don't know if you can make that out or not. That's the Euphrates River. And just keep in mind that that's a border between them and the kingdoms to the north, Assyria, Babylon. When those kingdoms would come and invade, they would come down through the river and invade that territory. So this was kind of a border there, the Euphrates River. And then we go all the way to the southwest, and this is the border also that would be to Egypt. So when we look at verse, uh, well, what verse am I looking for here? Verse 24 he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river, from Tifsa even to Gaza over all the kings on this side of the river, and he had peace on all sides round about him. And also, we can look at verse 21 as well. Solomon had rule over all the kingdoms from the river, the Euphrates River, onto the land of the Philistines. And that would be what borders the Mediterranean Sea there, and all the way to the border of Egypt. So the kingdom is great as far as geographical territory. And then let's look at the provisions for Solomon. And I cannot state this enough. I look at this list and I realize, I go back and look, this is just one day. This is just one day. So let's look at it. 30, 30 cores of fine flour. 30 cores of meal. A core is roughly 50 gallons. If you think about a 50 gallon, 55 gallon drum, a 55, a 50 gallon drum or something like that. Think if you had 30 of those of flour and 60 of those of meal. And then on top of that, you got 10 fat oxen, twenty. Pasture fed cattle, really good meat, good, good beef. A hundred sheep. And then for those who like a little different taste, a little heart, gazelle, something to kind of mix up the, the if you get a little too tired of beef, you want a little venison, you got your roebuck, you got your fatted fowl, a little different taste there for everybody. It's not the same thing every day. You, know, you may have heard stories many years ago, even in this country, people who had, were very poor were known to eat the same thing every day. Beans maybe, some kind of soup every day, maybe just potatoes every day. Every day, same thing, but not Solomon and his kingdom. Now let's look at the verse 20. Let's go back and look at verse 20 again. There's a phrase there mentioned, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand which is by the sea. Oftentimes in Scripture, in the Old Testament particularly, we'll see that phrase used to talk about many people, either the sand of the sea or the stars of the heaven, sometimes even the dust of the earth. But think about how the the numbers of people that we're looking at here. I want to go back to think about here from verse 20, the promise to Abraham. Whenever you see verse 20, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea in multitude. In Genesis chapter 15... We break we break apart the promise to Abraham in three sections. We talk about the being a great nation. And in Genesis chapter 15, verse five, Abraham was promised that your people will be as many as what? As the stars for multitude. God promised to Abraham, your people will be, they're not now but they will be as many as the stars for a multitude. And exactly when did that occur? When did that happen? Well, let's go back to Deuteronomy 10, verse 22. It is said here in Deuteronomy 10, verse 22, that the people were at that point. And this is when they're marching along, getting ready to go into the land of Canaan. Deuteronomy 10, verse 22 it said, thy fathers went down into Egypt, threescore and ten persons, 70 people. And now the Lord thy God hath made thee as what? the stars for multitude. So we tie Genesis 15 verse 5 in with Deuteronomy 10 verse 22. And not only that, I would tie in as well what we see here in this chapter Or in our parallel passage tonight, 2 Chronicles 1 verse 9. We see it's fulfilled in Deuteronomy. But it's even more uh, fulfilled in this chapter here. As we see it applies to the days of Solomon as well. They are multiplied as the stars of heaven. Now, let's look at the other part of the promise in Genesis chapter 12, that promise of the land promise. In Genesis 15, verse 18, God says, I'm going to give you this land. In Genesis 12, he said, I want you to go to a land. And when he got there, in Genesis 15, God said, I'm going to give you this land, this land of Canaan. It's not yours yet. In fact, it never was Abraham's, was it? So when was that fulfilled? In Joshua 21, verse 43, when Joshua had conquered much of the land, Joshua 21, verse 43, refers to this promise being fulfilled, the Lord gave unto Israel all the land which he swore to give their fathers, and they possessed it and dwelt therein. He gave them rest round about according to all that he swore unto their fathers. So we have the land promise given in Genesis 15. We have it initially fulfilled in Joshua 21. And then, as we see in this chapter tonight, that you see the borders that Solomon had in his kingdom all the way from Euphrates south to the border of Egypt. And that's as big as it got. What is the pinnacle of their kingdom geographically? It is now under the kingdom of Solomon. It's at its pinnacle. In fact, every facet of the kingdom is at its pinnacle during this period of time that we're talking about. This quarter that we're talking about, 1 Kings, every facet of the kingdom reaches its pinnacle during this period of time, geographically. Uh, Their peace and their prosperity, their possessions, their power, you name it, they're at their pinnacle now. And that's one reason it is so, such a beautiful picture that the New Testament gives us of the temple. When we look at the temple and we compare it to the church. Think about it like this. Uh, If you, you know, you may have seen a a show where uh, they show you a, a, a house before and after. And these people come in and they totally renovate the house. And they'll show you a before picture and an after picture. And maybe that before picture is just dilapidated. Maybe the roof is caving in. And it looks like it's decorated in the 1950s. It's in a dilapidated condition, and then you look at the after picture, and it's so much better, isn't it? A before and an after. Now, take that same thought, and as we are in the Old Testament, we look at the, we are the temple of God. We don't look back at the Old Testament and go, well, the temple was not a a dilapidated condition, was it? Actually, when we look back at the picture of the temple, it is great. It is magnificent. Full of splendor and glory. And to compare us to that by saying that we're greater than that, because we serve a king, as we saw in Matthew 21, we serve one that is greater than Solomon, And doesn't it stand to reason that every part of the kingdom is greater than that kingdom? So we're we're looking back at the temple at something great. So we're even greater. We're part of a greater kingdom than even that. So we begin to see why God... Through his wisdom and inspiration, shows us such a picture. You are part of a kingdom that is greater even than the kingdom of Solomon. We see the magnificent wealth, the provisions they, they had for a day. And you know, that's mostly a physical picture, but we're looking at we're a part of a kingdom that's much greater much more powerful, an everlasting kingdom, a spiritual kingdom. So we're looking at an after picture, but what we look back at is actually great too. So we see even more so how that picture should mean even more to us. The last part of that promise, by the way, is the seed promise in Genesis 12, verse 3. Where, is, where would you say that that's fulfilled Maybe some different places, but where I think of it is Acts 2 verse 39 of the day of Pentecost. Peter said, this promise is to you and to your children and all that are afar off. This promise is the promise to Abraham. This promise, what he promised to Abraham is being fulfilled today in your ears and to you, to all seed whether Jew or Greek all families of the earth will be blessed acts 2 verse 39 Okay, any thoughts as we pause there for just a moment First Kings chapter 4 we've seen a picture of the magnitude of of the kingdom And you know, when I look at verses such as verse 22, verse 27, and see how much that is required and demanded of this kingdom, I begin to think, well, who's paying for all this? And who's paying for it? Who pays for all these provisions and supporting the kingdom Tribute, yeah. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, you recall when the people wanted a king, they were warned that if you go that direction, that it's going to take a lot of money, tribute. He's going to exact tribute from you. He's going to demand work from your sons and your daughters. And we see the heavy price, all the taxes, the burden, and some degree of oppression that is demanded upon the people to support such a kingdom as this. David left his son a lot of provisions when he died, but they couldn't live on that by itself. There has to be with this much, this big of a kingdom, and this great of a kingdom and all the demands it has it has to be a constant flow of goods and services and taxes and so forth so we see 1 Samuel 8 Samuel prophesied to them what's going to happen when you have a king over you and we see that coming to fruition here don't we we see that coming about just like Samuel told them that it would. All right, anything else on so far? Up to verse twenty-eight. All right. Verse twenty nine. First Kings, we're back to first Kings chapter four and verse twenty nine. God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding, exceeding much and largeness, largeness of heart, even as the sand that is on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the children of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan, the Ezrahite, Heman, Chalcol, Darda, the sons of Mahal, and his fame was in all the nations round about. We've never, I don't think we've ever heard of those men, do you? I don't know if secular history records anything about these men at all. But Solomon was wiser than all men. Verse 32, he spake 3,000 proverbs. His songs were 1,005. He spake of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon, even unto the hyssop that springeth out of the wall. He spake also of beasts and birds and creeping things and fishes. And I think about the one that came who said, one that is greater than Solomon is here. Jesus spoke of himself, Matthew 21, verse 43. Even he, you recall, spoke of things in nature. He spoke of the birds of the heaven. He spoke of the soil and taught us great wisdom from that, didn't he? The parable of the sower, Jesus used such a simple thing. It taught us great wisdom out of such a thing that we don't even think about, soil. Solomon as well talked about things in nature that we can learn lessons from. Of beasts, verse 33, of birds, of creeping things and fishes, and there came out, uh, or they came of all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. So we've looked at verse 20 through 28 a little bit more of the provisions, the demands, physical demands of the kingdom, and if you will, the magnitude of it, the glory of it, the splendor. And now we're looking at a little bit more of a, of a snapshot of Solomon's wisdom. And we talked about that last well, a couple of weeks ago. But here we see a little bit better picture of about just how it compares to the men of that day and time, the men of the earth, and how his wisdom would compare to theirs. Far greater. Far greater than the wisest men that they could come up with. His wisdom was greater. Now, what, what do we learn from that? What good does that do us? Again, I'll go back to the point that every, remember it. Let me pause here just a minute. By the time we finish this class, I want you to think of Solomon's kingdom like you've never thought about it before. About every facet of the kingdom being so great, incomparable. And even when we look at the wisdom of Solomon, we look at the wisdom, we look back at the wisdom of Solomon. Yes, he was great. But what does Matthew 21 verse 43 say? Unless I've got the verse wrong, Matthew 21, verse 43 says, There is one greater than Solomon, and Jesus was talking about himself. So that tells me the wisdom of Jesus is far greater than what Solomon could come up with, and most especially what I can come up with. Verse 29 through 34, as we summarize this, he's wiser than all men. His wisdom is known throughout the world. 3,000 proverbs, 1,005 songs. People and peoples and kings came from afar. We'll see in chapter 10, the Queen of Sheba is skeptical. She wants to come see it for herself. People and kings come from afar to hear the wisdom of Solomon. You know, if if thinking about the magnitude of Solomon, one way I, I like to describe this is Saul. Going back to King Saul, Saul was a king like the people wanted. David was a king like God wanted for the people. And Solomon was a king that, if you will, had everything a man could want. And we see the results of that. And also, think about the wisdom here, as we see here stated in verse 29. His wisdom and understanding, exceeding much. And in so many different areas, sometimes we'll you might see a man that's very very wise in one area of life. But Solomon was wise in many areas. You name it. So many areas of life he was able to present wisdom to people. Verse 31 says he was wiser again than all men. Thinking about a book that we know of that presents this idea. He was wiser than all men. What book do we look at that talks about the wisdom that we need? What book is that? Proverbs. Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is full of wisdom. I want you to go with me to Proverbs chapter 8 for just a moment and think about some of the things that Solomon wrote about that he left for us by inspiration to learn from Proverbs chapter 8. You know, many times we think of wisdom, sometimes we think of wisdom kind of like you know, the common ideas. Wisdom is a little nugget of information that will help you with your daily life. It will help you. It's kind of like a self-help book. Your wisdom, That wisdom that gives you a little nugget that, that might help you Have a better life. Be a better person. Proverbs chapter 8 is one of those chapters, I think, that really summarizes a lot of what wisdom does and can do for us. Wisdom is personified here in Proverbs 8, verse 12. I, wisdom, have made prudence my dwelling and find out knowledge and discretion. I, wisdom. So here on out, the, the chapter is as if wisdom is a person and he's speaking to us. What does he have to say? Well, verse 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogancy in the evil way. The perverse mouth do I hate. Counsel is mine and sound knowledge. I am understanding. I have might. And notice this. We go on down to verse 18. Riches and honor. Who do we know that had riches and honor That we recently studied about. 1 Kings 3, Solomon himself had riches and honor. But these are not the kind of riches and honor that Solomon had. These are true riches and honor, verse 18. Riches and honor in spiritual terms, yea, durable wealth and righteousness, verse 18, Proverbs 8, verse 18. Now I want you to go on down to verse. Well, verse nineteen. My fruit is better than gold. Who had much gold? Who had more gold than anybody could ever imagine? Solomon. My fruit is better than gold, yea, than fine gold. Through his wisdom, he's saying that there's something better than gold, and it is the wisdom that comes from God. I walk in the way of righteousness. Verse twenty. In the midst of the path of justice. By the way, there's that coupling that we talked about last time, verse 20. The words righteousness and justice, there they are once again. Now let's go down to verse 35. Here's why I made that comment that wisdom is not just simply a little cherished nugget of information that helps us in our daily lives. Verse 35 Whoso findeth me, now wisdom is talking. He says, Whoso findeth me findeth life and shall obtain favor of the Lord, but he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me love death. So as as I read verse 35 and 36, I come to the conclusion that wisdom is not just simply a good little nugget of information. Wisdom is salvation. You might say wisdom equals salvation. For if I have wisdom and apply it correctly, then it is salvation. You notice he's saying in verse 35 and 36 that this has to do with the soul and the welfare, not of the body, but the welfare of the soul. Any other thoughts on 1 Kings 4? I'm going to leave you with this one question or perhaps something I want you to carry with you. As you study your lesson for Sunday morning, there's a few verses, three or four verses, that have to do with our subject tonight and what, the things that we've talked about tonight. And I want you to th- see if you can come up with what those verses are that I'm referring to. In Romans chapter 11, we are studying Romans 11, right? <clears throat> There's a few verses that will apply to what we've studied here tonight. And I want you to see if you can find that and tie that in a little bit with what we've talked about tonight. I guess we better stop there. Appreciate the class.